Good morning. This is Ellie Newman, and you're listening to It's Relationship. My guest today is Dr. James Doty. Dr. Doty is the director and founder at C-Care, where he is a clinical professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at Stanford University, as well as an inventor, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. And very busy guy. We were just talking about it. He just got back from India, just got out of surgery yesterday, just in time to make it to his plane to get here last night to come here this morning to give a talk this afternoon. As founder of C-Care, Dr. Doty works with both the Stanford Institute for Neuroinnovation and Translational Neurosciences and a variety of scientists from a number of disciplines examining the neural basis for compassion and altruism. Welcome and thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start our discussion today um, looking at the scientific relationship and connection of compassion to neurological health. And before we do that, I want to just frame it a little bit and get the audience thinking about what compassion really means. So we went to the trusted Webster's (laughs) Dictionary. Um, Compassion, sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate. And near antonyms, which I thought was interesting to think about when you're thinking about it, what it actually does mean. And this is, would be almost the opposite, in some cases the opposite, direct opposite. Indifference, insensitivity, unconcern, inhumanity, animosity, antipathy, and hostility. Does that sound about right? Uh, yes, absolutely. And so uh, I concur with your definition. Uh, that's exactly right. I, it was interesting. What struck me was adding sort of sympathy and empathy with the desire to alleviate? Um, well, certainly empathy is different in that uh, it is recognizing someone's emotional state and taking on that state. So empathy doesn't necessarily relate to suffering per se. It's simply uh, taking on another's emotional state, and that then allows you to respond to it. I read about an experiment where they were testing monks' brain waves. And uh, said that the monks were laughing at first. They're like, "Really, you're going to test? Put something on our head to test our our uh, levels of compassion?" And I thought that's not where it is. It's it's in the heart. Well, that's exactly right. And the study uh, or the the um, example you give is uh, actually Richie Davidson when he uh, first went to India uh, to study uh, Tibetan monks. Uh, they were using at that time, and this was almost 30 years ago a electroencephalogram cap that they would wear on their heads. And he told the monks that they were going to be studying compassion, and they all started laughing. And he thought they were laughing at this sort of ridiculous uh, image of somebody wearing this cap. But in fact, what they were laughing at was the fact that he really didn't understand compassion because they uh, know uh, that it arises from the heart. The interesting aspect of that is, in some ways, they were actually correct as you probably know, we have nerves that go throughout our body, and there's something called the vagus nerve, which actually has a large representation in the heart, as well as other organs, and your emotional state, or as an example, your response to suffering, uh, affects the tone of your vagus nerve, 
and there can be one of two responses. One could be compassion and a desire to help another, but the other could be fear and anxiety. And the vagus nerve, that's the nerve in the brain stem that innervates many organs, including the heart. And what is sort of the ideal relationship between the heart and the, the, the brain and then that nerve? What when, when the relationship is working smoothly and well and, and fortifying and supporting one another, what does that look like and what does it do to the body? So <clears throat> to simplify it, uh, you can think of it as a, um, a seesaw. And there are two aspects of it. One is something we call the sympathetic nervous system. Uh, and this is part of the autonomic nervous system, which your vagal nerve regulates. But uh, So the seesaw is when your sympathetic nervous system is engaged, that is associated with the flight or fight response. And as an example, hundreds of thousands of years ago when we were on the savanna in Africa and you saw a lion, as an example, your sympathetic nerve would engage or your sympathetic nervous system would engage your heart rate would increase, blood would be diverted from your internal organs to your muscles, and your pupils would dilate, and you would run and hopefully escape. And if you did escape, then your tone would come back down to normal. Uh, And you're at a super high stress level, right? This is where panic in every cell of the body, am I going to stay and fight or am I going to run? It's all survival-based, Exactly. And so... um, but the, the thing about that is, at least at that time, as soon as the event completed, you would be back down to your baseline. And the baseline is the opposite, which is engagement of your parasympathetic nervous system uh, would kick in. And you would be calm. You would be focused, if you will, on the present moment. Uh, you would not be distracted. And parasympathetic nervous system is engaged. That is when you connect the best. That's when you're most creative. That's when you're... Uh, peripheral nervous system is working at its best. You have this calmness, lowered blood pressure, and uh, actually a desire and a sense of connection with others. And when you're not focused in the the current moment, I mean, it's the typical alternative would be a constant state of worry, right? You're either worrying about the future, you're worried about what happened in the past, and you're creating stress and aggravating the the sympathetic. the sympathetic is what's aggravating. Yeah, so it's interesting. A study was done uh, a while ago. And uh, remember, we're the most evolved species who has a memory of a past and a perception of a future. And what happens is that um, the study showed that about 80% of the time, uh, people are in thinking about one or the other places, but they're not being here. So they have regret and anxiety about uh, what occurred in the past or what has yet to occur, thinking that they can influence the future. And as a result, a lot of them are not connected. And the thing about humans is that we have this ability to abstract think and think about things as an example, hold them in front of us and live them or in our mind. And as a result, if you're thinking about something that happened in the past, or hasn't happened yet, but you want to happen in the future, you can't focus on interacting with somebody in an authentic way at that moment. And they did a study, I think, recently, too, where they realized that people tend to remember the negative 
experience of the past far higher percentage than positive ones as well. So not well, only redwelling in the past, but dwelling on the bad things that happened. Well, and the, and the reality is that as a species, what is it that gets our attention? Because it was a, a, a very important part of our survival. It was to respond to threat and danger. So... Um, Danger, danger, Will Roger. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and you watched, uh, what was that, Lost in Space. Right? Uh, <clears throat> but that's exactly right, because uh, those are the things you had to remember to survive, survive and recognize patterns that would potentially pose a threat. So when you think about, geez, when I went to this place and got beat up, <laughs> I don't I don't want to go, you don't go there yeah, again. Yeah, exactly. Or do it differently. Yes. So uh, let's talk a little bit. There was a two weeks uh, study, two weeks of compassion training, and it improved the immune function and reduced stress. Um, so not only is it affecting the brain, our stress level, but also our overall health by making us have a, a healthier immune system. Well, there are many components to it. That's just one representation. And uh, I do want to say a lot of this data is fairly preliminary, but it has now been repeated many times. So what happens is when you, if you will, think of uh, being compassionate with intent or caring or serving others, um, what happens is this kicks in your uh, parasympathetic nervous system, increases your vagal tone, and as a result, your blood pressure lowers. You're actually, your cardiac system and peripheral vascular system works better. You decrease your inflammation by boosting your immune system. And the hormones that are typically associated with stress, as an example, cortisol, actually lower. So if you will, being kind or compassionate actually improves your physiology and ultimately uh, increases your longevity. There was a study that was done in women over the age of 65 who were volunteers, and if they volunteered a certain number of hours, it actually dramatically increased their longevity. But there were two exceptions in that same group. One was individuals who actually uh, did it uh, to gain something. So if they were doing it to get some sort of prize there's the book drive where he talks about that that if you already have a internal inclination to do something if then there's an external reward presented that you're less likely to continue the behavior and you're saying it even has a physiological response yeah that's, that's a different. slightly different study so the, the one i'm talking about or the example i'm talking about basically says if yes if you're doing it for the right reason without expecting any reward you get the physiologic benefit if you have some other motivator, uh, then you do not. So let's say donating money to get your name in lights, you do not get the physiologic uh, benefit. So you have said we have an epidemic of depression, isolation, and loneliness, while the U.S. alone consumes 25% of the world's resources. Uh, I want to talk about C-Care um, and how the center came to be and what your goal was for it when it came to be and, and what it is now? Um, that's a lot in that. Uh... <laughs> it is. We'll start at the beginning. No. So how did it come to be? Where did the idea come from? Well, so let's say what the acronym CARE stands for, which is uh, the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. Uh, and this evolved from something I had started at Stanford called Project Compassion. And what that entailed was me 
twisting arms, convincing, controlling scientists in the area of neuroscience and psychology at Stanford to participate in uh, some scientific studies that I was interested in. And I had become interested in this topic uh, because I had personally experienced, uh, from my own background, uh, if you will, suffering. And it astounded me because there were individuals who had means, wealth, position, influence, who could easily help without any cost to them, but did not. Then you see the paradox of people have almost nothing who reach out to you, embrace you, and do anything for you. And, and it's extraordinary. So I wanted to research this, and uh, I got these colleagues together, and we began some conversations, dialogues, and these research studies. And then one day it popped into my head, wouldn't it be extraordinary if we could get the Dalai Lama to come to Stanford to talk about compassion? Now, I am not a Buddhist. I had no particular interest in the Dalai Lama per se. And to be frank with you, I'm not even sure how or why this popped into my head. <laughs> but nonetheless... It did. Yes, it did. And so um, <clears throat> I was able to arrange a meeting with him, and uh, uh, we began this conversation. And immediately... Uh, when I had asked him to come to Stanford, he agreed. And, you know, it was overwhelming to me because uh, I didn't even ex expect that. Uh, uh, and it, so it was wonderful. But then we began talking, and uh, our conversation went far beyond what the length of what had been scheduled. And then at the end of it, he began this animated dialogue with his translator. Now, you have to remember, the Dalai Lama does speak English quite well, but for complex nuances of English, he has a translator always. And this is an individual who has now been with him a quarter of a century and is a former monk and is a confidant and advisor. But anyway, this conversation between them was in Tibetan. And I was sitting there, oh, my goodness, did I somehow irritate the Dalai Lama, although he was smiling the whole time. And at the end of it, his translator turned and he said, Jim, His Holiness is so impressed by this endeavor, he wants to make a personal donation, which turned out at that time to be the largest donation he's ever given to a non-Tibetan cause, which, again, the first aspect, which him agreeing to Stanford was overwhelming, now uh, <laughs> it was extraordinary. And uh, as a result, uh, immediately two individuals uh, came forth and made uh, million-dollar donations just spontaneously, and uh, and then I went back to our dean at the medical school and uh, said, well, you know, I have this money, part of which is from the Dalai Lama, to promote uh, this research endeavor. And he was, go ahead. And was it a leap for them? I mean, at this point, you've got the Dalai Lama on your side, so that's good, I'm sure. But was it still a leap? Like, is this some, did they think, well, this isn't really connected with, with medicine or this isn't something that really fits with our typical academia personality? Well, I think there are two parts. I mean, I, I have to tell you, you know, Stanford in many ways is an extraordinarily competitive and some would say ruthless environment. And some would say even there's a lack of compassion there. Uh, I I'm think, thinking Berkeley. You might have had you know, an right, easier exactly, road right, across yeah. the water. Exactly. But uh, uh, that being said, uh, the dean was certainly intrigued. But he said, you know, Jim, you're a neurosurgeon, and, uh, and uh, that's not your domain. Uh, and typically, if we were going to support a center, it would be run by somebody who has domain expertise. But he said, you know, I understand you have a passion for this and you're interested. If you can convince your chairman and the head of the Neuroscience Institute to be supportive of this endeavor uh, and ultimately 
be responsible on some level. Um, and uh, so we had a meeting, and they were enthusiastically so, and that's how the center began. So, so I want to talk about the director, the initial di- program director of CARE. Uh, it was someone who also wasn't from the outside the most likely candidate. And I wonder why it was important enough to you to get him into that position when clearly you, you knew you were going to have more opposition selling him because he didn't have the <laughs> traditional background. You've already, you know, had to cross many barriers and rivers and ropes and to, to get here, to get the center going. So, so why take this on? Why, why did that matter? Uh, well, first of all, you have to know a little bit about my own background. Uh, I grew up in poverty. Neither of my parents went to college. My father was an alcoholic. My mother was an invalid, chronically depressed, tried to commit suicide numerous times. We were on public assistance. And <clears throat> so the reality is my own trajectory has been somewhat extraordinary. And uh, I have been blessed by people who uh, intervened, if you will, or uh, were there at certain critical periods. And I can tell you a story about that in a few moments. But getting back to then the specific you're asking about, so when I first started the center, it was a center of one. <laughs> and I realized I needed some help. Um, so I uh, had a conversation with an individual at Google who ultimately uh, has written a book called Search Inside Yourself. But he's a very interesting engineer there named Ming. And he's also known as the Jolly Good Fellow. But anyway, in the first meeting I had with Ming, there was a tall, gangly youth with him uh, with, you know, uh, uh, long hair, and we began talking about this uh, domain of compassion and empathy and altruism. And this young man was extraordinary. I mean, I was amazed because he had great interest in this. He had dropped out of college. He had been studying neuroscience. He was now working at Google, and he certainly knew much more about this than I did. And uh, so then, though, in the middle of the conversation, he reveals to me that he's not actually an engineer at Google. He's a massage therapist at Google. And so basically he's a high school graduate who's a college dropout. You thought he's perfect for the job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, uh, I have great belief in individual's potential. So I said, why don't you come to work for me? And he did. But I did not really think about that. Uh, what it entailed before I asked, because then to make him program director at the center at Stanford University to essentially a high school graduate, I had to call in every favor and card to get that done, but ultimately it was done. And he proved actually to be extraordinarily critical to our success, both in regard to his knowledge and his uh, wonderful ability to think visionarily, if you will, and we got along great, and I became his mentor. But to make a long story short, not only did he do an extraordinary job, but I also realized this couldn't be the end for him because he had immense potential and he was extraordinarily smart. So I encouraged him to go back to school. Uh, I encouraged him to work on a research project that uh, actually we funded with a very prominent scientist at Stanford. And he did that. And then ultimately, I said, why don't you go to work full-time for him as a research assistant, because that's going to secure your future ultimately, and your future cannot be with me. He did all of those things. He just recently published a paper in one of the most prestigious journals in the world, and he's now a graduate student in neuroscience at Princeton. And I hope you gave yourself a big pat on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I'm only paying forward, if you will. 
This is Ellie Newman on It's Relationship, and I'm here with Dr. James Doty. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and continue our train of thought of recognizing uh, personal potential and, and versus external appearances and the perception and reframing of that and then the empowerment that it creates. And we'll be back in just a moment, so stick with us. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman and It's Relationship. I'm here with Dr. James Doty, and I want to talk a little bit about your path here, and you mentioned it a little bit, your background. You had a life-changing experience at 13 where you had visited a magic shop and a woman there told you that she could change your life if you came to visit her every day for the next six weeks. And you went and you did it. And I just want to talk a little bit about what were your sort of initial thoughts when she said that. I mean, you're 13. Uh, you had come from a background, as you just were describing, that was um, seen a lot of suffering, was challenging in a lot of ways, not being supported uh, on a lot of levels. When she told you that, kind of, do you? I don't know. You remember sort of what had run through your head? Were you like, "Oh yeah, right, lady," or were, or did it somehow? You thought, "Well, I'll try it." Well, uh, let me put into a slightly uh, more clear context. So, I had ridden my Stingray bike. Uh, uh, further distance than I normally did uh, on one Saturday. And uh, uh, I came upon a strip mall, and in the strip mall was a magic shop, and I was so, interested. So you weren't headed to the magic shop. You were just riding. Exactly. And I saw this magic shop, and I went inside, and the owner was not there, uh, but his mother was visiting for the summer, and she was sitting in while he went to lunch or ran errands. And she was, if you will, and I don't know if you understand this description, I describe her as an earth mother type, you know, these women from the 60s who still are living in the 60s, basically. But the sweetest person in the world had an infectious smile. We began chatting, and it was wonderful. She was very open, kind, and embracing. And uh, about 15 or 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes after we began talking, she said, you know, I really like you. I'm here for six weeks. And I told her a little bit about my background because she'd ask. And she said exactly what you said. Uh, I think I can teach you something. And uh, frankly, I had no thought. Uh, you know, I was 13. I was already beginning to uh, be involved in potentially what you could describe as uh, negative behaviors. Uh, because, you know, when you have no hope and you have no future and it appears as though uh, you're not going to, uh, you don't have a whole lot left. And, and um uh, you have so, so not what much to lose. did you have? You had something, right? You had an openness or a courage or a willingness to try. There was some element where you didn't just say, oh, this kooky lady from the 60s, <laughs> I'm out of here. Uh, well, that may be true, and you have to understand, in fact, uh, you know, if you're not particularly bright and you don't have self-awareness, living in a, a particular circumstance, you don't think about it, you just live. If you have self-awareness and some degree of uh, intelligence beyond that, uh, it's actually even worse suffering because you're wondering why this, why is this happening to me? Why am I, you know, I know people who either are not as bright or don't work as hard, yet they're benefiting, and I'm in this, you know. To not, resentment as well. Yeah, and you can see how you could have anger and despair and hostility. But anyway, uh, she was so kind, and uh, uh so I didn't think a whole lot. I just thought she was a nice lady, and I enjoyed talking to her. So I showed up every day. I had nothing else to, to do, actually. I mean, it was the summer. And uh, for six weeks, we spent about an hour to an hour and a half together. And she taught me a meditation practice, a mindfulness practice, and um, <clears throat> a um, 
a visualization technique in addition to, if you will, mixed in there, this potpourri of the power of positive thinking and self-hypnosis. And uh, uh, so prior to that, I tell people I was like a leaf being blown by an ill wind. I had no control. I would just be, you know, whatever happened. I was living just by circumstance. Uh, and I had no control of it, which is also a horrible position to be in because it creates anxiety because you don't know what's going to happen. Are you going to come home and, you know, your father's drunk? Is he arrested? Have you been evicted? Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, that interaction with that woman took me from a worldview, and in fact it was, if you will, the first example I had of neuroplasticity. I went from a perception, if you will, or position where I thought I had limited to no possibilities to suddenly seeing the world as unlimited possibilities. And that event uh, changed how completely how I saw the world to not just be sort of a passenger on this boat that was just going along rudderless, but that I had actually the ability to reach over and start steering the boat. And uh, it had a profound, profound impact on me and also changed how I saw the world and uh, how I saw people. And uh, it's allowed me to go to medical school, college, uh, become a neurosurgeon, become a successful entrepreneur, and ultimately to do this work. And it's been an extraordinary blessing. And was it something after you left those six weeks, was it something you practiced? How did you hold on to that when you were returning to your old environment that had all the same stressors and same circumstances? Well, uh, it's interesting because I had no... uh, um, parental oversight <laughs> so I could do whatever I wanted uh, but I started spending two to three hours a day actually meditating and visualizing how I wanted to be or how I uh, wanted to see the world and uh, uh, so it uh, allowed me to not be emotionally responsive to every event it allowed me not to be pessimistic it allowed me to look at opportunities a different way, and um, it gave me this sort of uh, sense of lightness, and, uh, and what's amazing is, and science has borne this out, if you walk into a room and are engaging, inclusive, open, and kind, it has a profound impact on how others interact with you, just as each of us can probably think of an example where some the opposite type of person walks in a room and everybody sort of it makes everybody nervous and uncomfortable and oftentimes angry and uh, and I suddenly saw this so clearly so I just changed Amy Cuddy just did um, research and uh, I think she's at Princeton or Harvard that if you sit in an open powerful position for just two minutes it completely affects not only the way others see you but your, as you were talking earlier, your cortisol level, your hormones, your willingness to take a chance, and your likelihood for success. No, that's absolutely correct. And, and uh, I'm not sure if I would say power is the right word. I would uh, probably say more uh, a confident position where you're not so much putting out a statement that you're powerful, you're putting out a statement that I'm okay as I am. And, and so I'm, I'm open, yes. because when you're feeling vulnerable, you're going to close and protect and exactly. not come from your, your true self. No, exactly. And, and the sad thing is you see people who have all of these abilities, and in fact, frankly, all people, and it's not so much 
that uh, uh, there's something wrong with them. A lot of people think there's something wrong with themselves. The reality, this is open to everyone, and everyone is sort of this unique, magical being that's just sitting there. They just uh, haven't seen it yet. And it's extraordinary when you, if you will, give people tools or allow them to re- release this incredible uh, energy that they have. You know, I, I give an example sometimes. <clears throat> you see two people and they walk out of a building in the rain. And one person sits there and says, damn it, the, it's raining, you know, my suit's getting wet, I didn't bring my umbrella, I have to walk here, the traffic's going to be horrible, my whole day is ruined, you know, this is just the way it is for me. You see another person walk out and they go, God, it's warm out, it's raining, rain and water give life to, to our earth. Uh, it feels so good on my body. I'm so happy because now I'm going to go home and I'm going to see the plants blooming. And this is just fantastic. Open their arms and put their head up and get it, wet. Exactly. And, and But both have lived the same event. Yeah. And it's how you choose to respond to the event. So let's talk a little bit about that. You have achieved from any external observer's viewpoint, uh, very impressive success on many, many levels in many, many areas. You said it would be perfectly okay not to be in any of these places of success. It isn't what defines your identity. What defines your success and defines who you are is the way you interact with others and the way you recognize similarities in the community or communal journey. What did drive you to strive for, for your achievements in business and medicine and academia and altruism? Well, um... I, you know, I talk about this interaction when I was 13, but it wasn't as if after that I walked away a perfect being. Uh, there were many lessons to learn and, uh, and insights to gain. Uh, when you grow up in poverty, you believe, based on what you externally see, and very superficial, I must say, that uh, happiness is manifested by control and wealth because typically most of us see that people who have large amounts of money get to do what they want and uh, and geez wouldn't it be great to live in a big house and have all the food you want and drive expensive cars and travel here and there and that's what I thought I wanted so these tools this woman gave me allowed me to go on that journey and I ended up uh, as you pointed out uh, not only becoming a neurosurgeon but I came uh, became a very successful entrepreneur worth tens and tens of millions of dollars and and so why medicine? I'm going to backtrack you up just a little bit so we can see kind of the whole path. You went to UCI and started your uh, undergraduate degree, which you then somehow didn't finish and went to Tulane <laughs> to get your medical degree and went back to UCI and finished it, or they gave you one, and then you went on um, uh, to yeah. continue. So, well, so why uh, medicine, and what did that sure. route kind of look uh, like? Sure. Well, uh, to sort of respond to that, first of all, when I was in fourth grade, uh, there was a a doctor who came to my class, uh, he was a family practice doctor, and I, he so impressed me because of his kindness. And I asked him, I said, well, geez, uh, could I be a doctor? He said, you know, you can be anything you want to be. So I started telling everybody I was going to be a doctor. But, you know, frankly, if you don't have mentors, if you don't have connections, if you don't know people, if you don't even understand how to apply to college, uh, that's a long path and an unlikely path. Uh, So what happened was, after this interaction with this woman, the way I ended up in college, and it shows you how intent, you may not know how to get from point A to point B, 
But with these tools, you get there, it's just not always a straight line. And so what happened was I was in a science class, and I was sitting next to a young lady who was quite pretty, as I recall, and I was talking to her, and she was filling out an application. And I looked over, and I said, what are you doing? And she said, well, I'm applying to college. The deadline is coming up shortly. And I said, really? And I, frankly, I didn't even know. Uh, and uh, I said, where are you going? And she said, UC Irvine. And I said, and she said, where are you going? And I said, well, that's where I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Just filling out my application. Yeah. Well, no, she said, oh, well, do you have an application? And I said, no. And she said, I have an extra one. And literally, that's the only college I applied to. And, of course, it was the only one I was accepted. And by this time, my grades had turned around somewhat. And uh, so I went there. But it was very difficult because I had to leave several times to take care of my ailing uh, mother and get my father out of jail or uh, all sorts of things. And ultimately, I had a horrible GPA and, uh, in fact, was not going to graduate. Uh, at the time I applied to medical school, my uh, grade point average was 2.53, and the average GPA for acceptance was 3.79, I believe, or 3.76, something like that. But it was an A- minus average. And... Uh, we had at my college a pre-med committee that you would have to meet with to get a letter of recommendation. So I went to apply, and basically I was told, we're not going to schedule this for you because it's a waste of everyone's time. You're never going to get into medical school. Uh, so I refused to leave until <laughs> they scheduled uh, this uh, interview. And they finally did, because I wasn't going to leave. And so I went into a room uh, with three professors sitting with their arms crossed, obviously bored. And, and, and what gave you that confidence? You know, we're going to take just a short break here, and I want to come back and, and just see if you're aware of sort of in that moment, what gave you that confidence to say, no, I'm staying. So we'll be right back. All right, we're back. So so in that moment, if you remember, you know, is that did you just come into the world with that? sense of, you know, I'm staying, I'm, get, I'm going there, and I'm staying till you, till you open the door. Well, I think there were several things that I learned from, again, uh, primarily from this initial interaction with this woman, which was what happens to a lot of people is that they'll say they want to do something, and they will have all these people who they think are their friends say, no, you can't do it. And the reason they say you can't do it is because they can't do it. And they don't want you to do it because it, it says something about them. And so I learned this lesson. When people oftentimes are discouraging or uh, negative, it's because they're terrified themselves of what that represents. And if you do it, then it says, oh, they're a failure. And, um, and the other side was I recognize that every person has dignity. And no one has the right to take that away from you unless you give it to them. And essentially, by telling me it was a waste of everyone's time, that is an attack on my dignity. Uh, <clears throat> so that's how I felt. So uh, when I went into this room, and it does seem ext extraordinary reliving this, uh, I didn't even wait for them to start talking to me because, you know, they're interested in objective measures, which have nothing to do with humanity. And so I, and again, this wasn't conscious per se, but what I wanted to do was to make them see me as a human being, right? And uh, so my first statement to them was, who gave you the right or the authority to destroy people's dreams? Because nobody has that right, and nobody certainly gave them any authority. And uh, I went on to lecture them for close to an hour, 
And the reality is there's not one shred of evidence that beyond uh, an above-level average of an, uh, or level of intelligence that this has any impact on your success in graduate school or medical school, certainly. And, uh, in fact, quite the opposite sometimes. I mean, I've seen individuals with stellar academic credentials who are I would not send my dead dog to them. And uh, so at the end of our conversation, which uh, decidedly was one-sided, <laughs> they were all crying. And what had happened was there was a shift. There was a shift from these people who look at papers that say GPA or, or whatever to, wow, this is an individual who is motivated, persistent, dedicated, and uh, now that makes a difference. And uh, so they actually ended up giving me the highest letter of recommendation that could be. And so, which is, again, extraordinary. So as I was leaving this room, there was a brochure on the wall, uh, which I recall very clearly, and it uh, described a program at Tulane University School of Medicine, which was for pre-med students who were from lower socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds, if you will, and uh, or minority students. And I realized that when I saw it, the deadline had passed. So I called the woman and uh, convinced her to let me in. And I went to the summer enrichment program, if you will. And um, I applied to medical school, and that was the only medical school I applied to. <laughs> and so they actually accepted me, uh, and ultimately without a degree. So I got accepted to medical school with a 2.53 and no undergraduate uh, degree. And amazingly, I did just fine. Uh, it appears so. <laughs> and, and you then took what, again, from the outside, looks like an interesting veer. Uh, you joined the Army to continue your medical education. Uh, what happened was uh, Tulane was a private school. I, I was given a, a scholarship uh, funds uh, for the first year. Uh, but it was very expensive, and I did not want to incur this very heavy debt, which unfortunately a lot of students incur. So there was a opportunity uh, to apply for a health profession scholarship from the military. Uh, so I did, and I received one. And ultimately, and, and the other side of this was I really believed that each of us, for the privileges we have in this country, have an obligation to give service back. So this sort of fulfilled two needs, that desire to do that and to pay for school. So I did that. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, um, I was told that uh, I could not get into neurosurgery because uh, it was hyper-competitive. They trained, the Army trained one neurosurgeon a year, and in fact, there was a three-year wait. That's just what you needed to be told to become a neurosurgeon. <laughs> right. I'm seeing a trend here. Uh, yes, yes. So, uh, and, you know, I didn't do it because I just wanted to right, right. do something that was perceived as very difficult. I actually very much liked it after I was exposed to it. So I actually went and spent a month of my vacation at Walter Reed, where they trained the neurosurgeon. And... Uh, to convince them to accept me. And, in fact, they said, yes, you're an excellent candidate, but you have to wait three years out in the f being a general medical officer out in the field waiting to take this position. And I said, that's unacceptable. <laughs> so so my cha the chair of the department said, well, maybe unacceptable, but that's reality. But what amazingly happened was the individual who uh, was slotted for that position uh, had some issues ultimately, uh, and uh, that position became open, uh, so they gave it to me. And, surprise, uh, surprise. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yes, that 
that's how it happened. And you then, um, through your research career, you were focused on uh, beams of radiation in combination with robotics and became an expert in stereotactic radiosurgery and complex, minimally invasive spine surgery. Went on to create numerous innovations and patents and major one, the CyberKnife, that you ended up not only recognizing its value and then investing in and then ended up restructuring the company and taking it through FDA approval and then taking the company public. Right. You then took a sabbatical. Was this before or after? When did that come into play? Well, you know, uh, one of the things I recognized is what people define as careers or how they're going to do things oftentimes they accept a traditional uh, view, again, getting back to this whole point of because sort of society has defined way, things a certain way, people oftentimes just do that. In regard to my uh, entrepreneurial career, a friend of mine had developed uh, this particular technology, and I really saw its potential value. Uh, but unfortunately, they did not raise enough money. They were disorganized. The person who ran the company was not the ideal person, and effectively it was bankrupt. And I had invested early on in that company. I'd become, by that time, a successful neurosurgeon in private practice in Southern California in a very uh, nice area. And, uh, and in fact, I had convinced a very wealthy individual to actually buy the first system uh, once the prototype had been made. And this was when there was no FDA approval or uh, even a way to get paid for it. But ultimately that happened, and then the company is effectively bankrupt. And I so believed in this technology that I put my entire financial uh, uh, wealth uh, at risk to save this company. The interesting thing, though, is the way it happened was I was actually in a bar at the Four Seasons. Uh, <laughs> began talking, I like these stories. <laughs> I began talking to a fellow and painted this picture of the potential of this, of this technology. And he was so engaged and, and became so enthusiastic that he actually uh, said, I will help you do this. And together we uh, restructured the company. And then I went out and raised uh, essentially about uh, $18 million in various uh, investments and uh, uh, loans and things, and uh, ultimately saved the company, restructured it, and then it went public in uh, 19, uh, or excuse me, 2007 with a valuation of $1.3 billion. It's not too shabby. <laughs> and are you meditating still at this point? Are you continuing your practice? Uh, probably for about a year and a half, I stopped, maybe even two years. And I have to tell you, in part, uh, I sort of lost my way for a little while in the sense that, um, you know, here I am extraordinarily successful. I am, you know, living a very wonderful, extraordinary, at least nominally successful life. Um... Uh, but then I lost everything in the dot-com crash. Uh, I had also been a successful investor and had made tens and tens of millions of dollars and was living in a penthouse and had uh, bought a villa in Florence and was buying an island in New Zealand and uh, was hobnobbing with the rich and famous. And, um, and then in six weeks I was effectively bankrupt. And uh, uh, suddenly I realized that I didn't need any of those things. And in fact, what, what was the, the time gap between the realization of bankruptcy to the realization of not, you know, feeling kind of confident and calm again that you don't you don't need all this? Well, thing? I was already heading in that direction. 
and then because I wasn't, you know, when you you have everything you think and you realize suddenly you have nothing. Uh, you you know, take stock. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, uh, hanging around with superficial people who talk about, you know, their interest is which Ferrari I'm going to buy or. Uh, where am I going to hang out with you know, what supermodel or whatever I'm going to date? It actually was a completely empty experience, and I, I realized that. And uh, and that that's not to say you cannot be in those places and enjoy them, but I wasn't getting what I needed on a deeper level. And uh, when I lost everything, it was actually a blessing. And uh, it also, I was in this position where I had made uh, some... Uh, uh, choices to give to charity, and uh, at that point when I had nothing, I still wanted to live up to that. So I actually took the stock in this company, uh, this medical device company we were talking about, and said, <clears throat> you know, I don't have any other asset, but uh, I uh, have this, and I'm going to give this to these charities to live up to those obligations. And ultimately that company, uh, as I mentioned, went uh, public for over a billion dollars, so I gave tens of millions of dollars ultimately uh, to charity, and I have to say that action uh, removed a monkey from my back. It was this idea that wealth uh, connoted with power, and that and I that gave me control. And I suddenly realized none of us have control. It's nice to think we have control, and in fact, for many people, money is more of a burden. Uh, and, and a disruptor of a happy, happy life than it is to give a happy life. You, you said happiness is serving others and having an impact on others each day. And people often become caregivers to heal others when they've had pain themselves and they haven't healed. How do you feel you've sort of progressed on that, finding balance on that path? Well, I think that's certainly true, and in fact, this is why a lot of uh, hurt people go into the medical professions or the healthcare professions. But uh, uh, I think that the path that I have been on uh, has given me insights uh, into my own wounds. You know, I give a lecture sometimes, and I talk about wounds of the heart. You know, each of us in our lives uh, have wounds, if you will, but most are superficial. They heal, and you go forward. But uh, some are very deep, and uh, they continue to cause immense pain. And it is that pain which manifests itself in people's behavior. And I say that, you know, the problems of our society uh, are not uh, outward problems. Uh, they're problems, if you will, of unhealed wounds of the heart. And all the science and technology is not going to make that pain go away. It's an inward journey uh, of introspection, understanding, and actually forgiveness uh, that allows those wounds to heal. And then you, for you to, or an individual to recognize uh, that it's okay to be fragile, it's okay to be scared, it's okay to be anxious. Uh, and that's the reality of each of us. And if we then go out and open our heart and look at the world, uh, in that way and embrace it, you suddenly find uh, that everyone will hold you. And, and you are, seems sort of very effectively straddling two worlds in your outward life and also 
in your internal life balancing science and faith. And you're doing that in your actions, being at Stanford University and a neurosurgeon and scientist with CKARE. And you're also doing that, it seems, internally with striving for outward achievements with a base and support of this spiritual wealth and, and belief. Are you aware of that <laughs> on a daily well, basis? <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because, um, you know, I have relationships with many of the iconic uh, spiritual leaders of our time, whether it's the Dalai Lama, and I'm talking about personal relationships, or Eckhart Tolle, or Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, or Amma, or, or extraordinary individuals, and uh, um, and that be and I'm on the board of trustees of something called the Charter for Compassion, which was Karen Armstrong's uh, initiative uh, to promote compassion in the world. And I'm also on the advisory board of the Council of the Parliament of World Religions. Now, the extraordinary thing and, about and four more boards, and a <laughs> consultant, and an advisor to a large number of companies and VC firms. <laughs> but uh, let's uh, lay it out here. <laughs> But, uh, uh, you know, so everyone or a large number of people somehow think I'm some sort of uh, extraordinarily religious or uh, spiritual person. And uh, I'm actually an atheist. I have no belief beyond uh, this moment. Um, and so they go, well, how is this even possible? And in fact, I have many friends who say, we don't believe you whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> because I deny I'm spiritual, but apparently uh, I will accept the uh, statements of many others. So then if you, you don't characterize it as spiritual, what would you define it as, that that element of yourself that is, is it being completely authentic and trusting your inner inner guide, or, or where, where how do you define it? Well, it's interesting you say that. Uh, so while my definition, I may not say that, apparently that is the definition and everyone says that, but... Getting back to your point, I think the statement you made is authenticity. Uh, I don't need to be anybody other than I am. Uh, and it's interesting because so many people want to judge people by saying, see, they did this, they did this, they did this, they did this, and then that gives them some sort of value. I prefer to look at people and think of them having immense value, every person, and I can learn something from. And it's a different perspective. Uh, the fact that I've done these accomplishments honestly is meaningless to me in terms of who I am, but it serves for me, if you will, proceeding on my path because it gives me certain access and a perception by others that allow me to do my work. Because I have learned some of the deepest lessons as a human being from some of the most pe extraordinary people who you many people not give a second thought of. And, uh, you know, I used to work in a liquor store at one time when I was in college, and there used to be a man who would come in and buy a, a, a quart of vodka every day. And, you know, I, of course, and especially with my father who was an alcoholic and I had issues related to that, you know, I, I judged this person as being nothing and I was sort of rude to him. And finally, at one point, he called me on it. And then... Uh, he lectured me uh, for about 15 or 20 minutes. And, and again, it gets back in some ways to that conversation I had with this uh, pre-med committee. He asked me what right I had to judge him when I know nothing about him. 
And then he proceeded to tell me how his wife died of cats. <laughs> so, uh, you know, horrible, horrible story and how painful it was to see his wife die, to spend three years with her and uh, how he lost his job and da-da-da-da-da. So uh, it gave me a new respect for him, and it taught me that lesson. You can't judge. And, and what's interesting is after that interaction, he stopped buying vodka. Oh, wow. And he would come in and sit with me and drink coffee for about an hour and a half wow. every day. Because uh, two things happened. One is he actually made the effort to help me, but then it shifted for him because somebody was now listening to him he and not just writing him off. And it was an extraordinary uh, interaction. And so this this lesson has been learned. I've learned it a, a number of times where it's a role. I mean, there's so many people who are so kind, who, are, who have so much uh, wisdom. And, you know, we talked earlier about uh, this epidemic of isolation and loneliness and depression in the United States. You know, it's extraordinary as you see these people from third world countries who are striving to come here, who will sacrifice everything. Yet they come to this place where we're impoverished. And they come from places that have some of the greatest wisdom traditions in the world. And the extraordinary thing is we know from science that individuals who have security, enough food to eat, shelter, their level of happiness does not significantly increase with increasing wealth. And instead of striving for more in our society, we should actually think about striving for less because ultimately less is more. You Instead of expending all this energy to acquire, 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 if you spend as much energy connecting and caring for others and realizing that you don't have to work 60 or 70 hours a week to be happy. You just have to hug people and care for them and love them in an open way. And, uh, you know, I get in front of audiences and people go, oh, here's this neurosurgeon or this uh, business guy and da-da-da-da, he's really high power. I have no problem crying in front of people. And I've never had anybody go, you know, you're such a jerk. <laughs> right? And in fact, as, when I give a talk, as soon as my voice cracks or I shed a tear, the whole room does. And why is that? It's because everybody wants to feel that way. Everyone wants to be able to take their guard down and say, you know, it doesn't matter what I've done, who I am, I'm a human being. And that's really the central point here, is we're all human beings in a world uh, that isn't always easy, sometimes very hard. And if we reach out, hold each other, it makes it a better place, and it makes our journey easier. Well, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a true pleasure to speak with you, and uh, hope you'll come back. Happy to do so. Right. It's, it's beautiful here. I love it. Thank this you. is Ellie Newman on KDPI 89.3 FM, and it's Relationship. Over cement walkways, paved over souls, bearing in depths of my steps, left upon a skull.